For me, it began in 1992 with an ending. I was five years old and happened upon a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. From that moment forward, the Man of Steel has been my favorite character. And now on this podcast, I'm exploring my fandom and examining the creative visions that have shaped the last son of Krypton across media for over 80 years. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This week, I'm joined by one of my dearest friends, uh, someone I've known for almost 20 years. Uh, we met and bonded uh, at the comic shop that we were both part of for many years. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the show, Rich Roney. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for being part of this. Thanks for inviting me. This is uh, actually somewhat of an unusual episode in the sense that we're not talking about a comic that you may have read or a television show or movie that you may have watched. Instead, we're talking about something that did not come to pass. And what I'm referring to is Superman 2000. This was a rejected proposal in the late 90s uh, by a quartet of comics creators, Grant Morrison, Mark Wade, Tom Pyre, and Mark Miller, to revamp the Superman books at the turn of the century. Uh, and like I said, this pitch uh, was not approved. This did not move forward. Um, and I had heard about it and I had, you know, I had maybe seen bits and pieces of it over the years, but I had never read the full thing until now, uh, in part because I didn't know that the whole thing was available. And it was actually you, Rich, uh, who found it and sent it to me. So I thank you for, uh, for passing that along. And here we are. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was happy to forward it, but I, just to give a little bit of background to your listeners, um, I'm going to be joining you at, uh, for another discussion at some point in the future to talk about the adventures of Superman, the TV show in the 1950s. And as I was um, knocking around the internet in, in just to find stories and background on that TV series, I discovered this, this proposal. And I wanted to share it with you because I know your love of the character. And um, I'm thrilled for this discussion. It's kind of like the road not taken. Um, but there's there's elements of this thing that I genuinely like, and there's elements I dislike. But boy, it does it does kind of tee things up for a really comprehensive discussion. Absolutely, I, you know I couldn't agree more. And um, again, yeah, especially for discussion purposes, uh, it's a really fascinating artifact to to sort of be able to take a look at. And uh, you know, listeners will have already heard my uh, discussion of the Jeff Loeb, Joe Kelly, Superman era. Uh, earlier on this podcast. And, you know, it's especially interesting for me because that's my favorite run of Superman comics, as listeners uh, will have heard. But uh, had this proposal been approved, um, it, it stands to reason we would not have gotten that other run. So uh, again, it's, it's, it's really interesting for, uh, for numerous reasons. But yeah, I'm really glad that you tracked it down. Now, uh, for anyone listening to this, if you want to read it, I mean, if you just Google Superman 2000 pitch, you should be able to find it relatively easily. Uh, we're certainly not going to be reading it to you uh, in this. And, you know, if you have the time, I do recommend reading it for yourself. It's it's pretty interesting. Uh, that being said, we are going to, to go through it, uh, I think, fairly thoroughly. Uh, and we'll sort of break it down and unpack all of it. So if you haven't read it, if you don't plan to read it, that's perfectly fine. Uh, it's not especially lengthy. Uh, I don't know if you read it online or if you printed it. I printed it out, and it was about seven pages. Uh, the, prompt, the font was extremely small uh, on that site, so uh, at a normal font, maybe it'd be about a dozen pages or so. Uh, so it's enough 
uh, again, to kind of fuel our discussion, but it's certainly not, uh, you know, it's a pitch, it's a proposal, so it's not, uh, you know, overwhelmingly voluminous. Would you agree? Definitely, definitely. Um, for whatever reason, um, when I read it, I don't know why, but it was on the order of 18 pages. So I guess it, it somehow, like you said, it depends on the font and the, and, and how you're the portal through which you're seeing it. But um, yeah, for, for the audience, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to read paragraphs to you, but it's, it's definitely, I'd, I'd urge your listeners to kind of peruse it and just see the big categories that they touch on. Um, and then it'll really flesh out a lot of the stuff that Anthony and I are going to uh, have a dialogue on. Absolutely. And I guess we should give a little bit of background on this proposal. Uh, you know, certainly we don't have any inside information about the inner workings of DC, but uh, I do think it's helpful to sort of give some context to this proposal. Uh, and I guess what we'll talk about is, you know, essentially what you'll find in various articles. And I know at least Mark Wade has discussed this. Uh, I found an interview on CBR from a while back where he where he did discuss it. Uh, so, you know, we do have some sense of what went on and why this didn't move forward. And, you know, my basic understanding of this, and I want to get your take on it as well, Rich, is that uh, then Superman group editor uh, Eddie Berganza in the late 90s he uh, basically commissioned this proposal from this group of creators, but it was seen by, I think there's some lines got, there was some miscommunication or some wires got crossed or what, but uh, it was seen by the higher ups at DC, including, I believe, Paul Levitz. It was seen as if uh, this group was crusading for the job, like they had taken it upon themselves uh, to submit this pitch, which sort of went or still goes against the, the freelancer code. Uh, and so it was not particularly well received. I mean, I think this really speaks to the internal politics um, at DC, and uh, you know, the pitch was rejected. Is that is that your general understanding of it as well? Yes, and I'll I'll add to that if I may. Uh, I think one of the things that that I read knocking around the internet, I, I agree with everything you said. I also think there was kind of a, a credo or a, a, a policy at DC not to give Superman to really big creators because the fear is they would have so much influence as a creator that they might alter the character. Um, I think there was more of a desire to give it to up and up and coming uh, writers and artists. Uh, I think that was a little part of it just in, in addition to what you've. Yes, I came, <clears throat> I came across that as well. Uh, and I found that uh, especially interesting. And I guess, I mean, on the one hand, it makes me kind of sad. I think it's unfortunate, <laughs> you know, if that, you know, is or was the policy. But, you know, to an extent, I, I, you know, I guess I understand. Uh, but in any event, it seems like that might have been wrapped up in all of this, too. So uh, for numerous reasons, but primarily it seems, you know, the inner workings and, you know, the behind the scenes politics at D.C., you know, this didn't move forward. Um, yeah. Can I add to that? One thing that really mystified me was... And we're going to get we're going to get into this a lot more, but the timing. I mean, uh, Superman and Lois got married. Uh, I remember where I was when I bought that issue, uh, October of 1996, and this this pitch was submitted October of 1998, with an eye towards um, you know uh, launching in 2000, early in 2000. So that was just very unusual from a timing standpoint. Uh, and everyone, you'll hear more about this as we delve into this. But the other thing that struck me is at that point in time, both Morrison and Wade were both hot. 
I mean, Morrison was doing JLA, and that was very popular, really well-received. And Wade was just coming off Kingdom Come. So you had really two, – two of the four were really strong individuals, um, just kind of unusual from a timing standpoint. Yes, and it's uh, you know especially uh, relevant that you mention the wedding, uh, and we'll get to that uh, in, a, in a couple of minutes. But particularly, uh, you know, what you were saying about the creative team. Yeah, this was a powerhouse team. I mean, you you spoke about uh, Wade and Morrison, and I concur. Uh, in addition to those two, you also had uh, the guys who were essentially their proteges at the time. Yes, um, you know, Mark Wade yes. and Tom Pyre were closely, and Grant yep. Morrison and Mark Miller and. My understanding is that relationship would would sour uh, in the years ahead, but at the time they worked very closely together. Uh, so I mean, yeah, this was a really uh, this was a, a packed a packed team for sure. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so I, I guess what I'll do now, I know you want to share your uh, you know the, sort of the question that I want to start with is whether we think this. Uh, this proposal, you know, it's a, it, whether, you know, it was a missed opportunity and it would have been great if it had moved forward or if maybe we kind of dodged a bullet and it's a good thing that it wasn't approved. And I know you want to save your final uh, your final judgment for the end. I'm going to lead off with mine. Um, and I, I guess let me preface it by saying I'm kind of conflict. I feel pretty conflicted uh, in part because, you know, this creative team and Mark Wade in particular, you know, Wade is one of my favorite writers Superman Birthright is one of my favorite stories, and it is, hands down, my favorite telling of Superman's origin. And I love so much of, of you know, the, the other uh, work he's done. So I'm such a huge fan, and I want to like this pitch, um, but ultimately, for reasons that we'll discuss, I'm actually glad that it didn't move forward. And it kind of speaks to something that, you know, you and I have had many discussions about this, uh, you know, off the air over, over the you know, a couple of decades that we've known each other. And I've spoken about this with other fans as well. I think as, you know, as comics fans in particular, you know, we have attachments to certain characters and there are aspects of those characters where I think, I mean, I think there are some fans who, who are maybe uh, extremely passionate about every aspect of the character, but I think for the average fan, and I'm, I'm including myself in that, you know, there are certain aspects of the character where I think, there's room for different interpretations. And there are elements in this pitch that um, either I don't really have a strong opinion on or even if I disagree with the track that they were on, it's not something that's offensive to me. But then there are those, so there are places where I think, you know, the character can sort of bend. But then there are the aspects of the character that I feel so strongly about that when something runs counter to it, um, it, again, I don't want to say it's offensive to me, but um, it really you know, prevents me from enjoying it. And so there are a couple of really global, big picture uh, views on the character that, that the creators here share that really run counter to how I see Superman to the point where, as I said before, I'm, I'm ultimately glad that this didn't move forward. As much as, again, I respect these creators, I enjoy their work, I appreciate the effort they put into this, I think we would have gotten some good stories out of it for sure, but ultimately, I, I am in the camp. I'm glad that we got the Loeb Kelly run instead. So I'll just put that out there now. Yeah. yeah. Anthony, I was going to ask, and, and you're better at this than, than I am, but could you, for the benefit of your listeners, could just try to hit all the big points of this pitch, uh, even if you just reference it, because some of the things that what I'd like to do is share with you what I what I appreciated and what I kind of liked and then and then also talk about what I disliked but I'm fearful that I'm not going to give it the proper background context 
you're better at that than me. Um, cause I just don't want to start leaping into, um, you know, granular detail and having it turn off the listeners. So if, if I could impose upon you spontaneously, just to kind of summarize kind of what the elements of this pitch were. You got it. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I want to, you know, I really do want to go through it, you know, together. And thankfully the, the pitch is structured in such a way that I think it sort of will, you know, we can kind of borrow its structure for our conversation. Uh, I actually, I wanted to start at the end, uh, sort of the last piece of this, um, because it, I think it's interesting in its own right. And it also leads to a, a larger point that I want to, I want to make sure I, I make, which is, uh, at the very end of the pitch, they talk about their writing process, uh, how they envisioned, uh, the four of them would write the four Superman books. So again, just as a quick refresher for anyone who doesn't remember or wasn't reading the Superman books, uh, at the time in the nineties, but you had four monthly Superman books, Action, Adventures, Man of Steel, and Superman. Uh, so four monthly books, which equated to a weekly Superman comic. And in addition to each of those titles having, having its, own, uh, you know, its own numbering system, there were also these triangle numbers on the covers of all the Superman books in the 90s, denoting the reading order uh, for that year. Uh, because again, the books were really intertwined, and you were the, the goal really was to create a weekly Superman adventure. So at the end of the pitch, the the guys here talk about uh, what their writing process uh, would would have been for this, and uh, they actually kind of knock uh, the system that I just described because, as the pitch points out, uh, what would often happen in the '90s is you would have you know <laughs> one creative team that was always stuck writing part three, <laughs> you know, of whatever story was running at that particular time. So what these guys uh, proposed was to really it really make it a jam session, like really collaborate on, on each issue. So it wasn't as if Wade was writing Superman and Morrison was writing action and so on, but that they would all pool their efforts for each issue. And so I think that's interesting because again, it's different than the way the books were being done at the time. But the point that I wanted to make is, uh, this is essentially the method that would be utilized uh, during the 52 weekly series that came out after infinite crisis. Do you remember that rich? Yes, very. And, you know, and the the comparison with um, collaboration between different creators simultaneously, like Wade and Rucka, uh, just that 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 commingling and that partnership. Yeah, fifty two is a kind of an extension of where they likely would have gone had they worked on on this. Yes, um, and the, so I, exactly. And so the point that I wanted to make, the larger point, is that. Uh, as we talk about the specifics of the pitch, I think there are going to be things that, you know, the listeners are going to, that will sound familiar to the listeners. And that's because when Wade and Morrison in particular had the opportunity, they incorporated a lot of these ideas when they had the yeah. chance to. Uh, so yeah. just, I'll jump ahead real quick, but uh, they talk about making Clark a, a vegan or at least a vegetarian. And that's an idea that Wade played with in Superman Birthright. Uh, and there's a lot here. Um, that we'll get to that you see play out in Morrison's All-Star Superman. So uh, I guess for anyone who, you know, really digs this pitch and, and wishes that it had moved forward, again, a lot of the ideas in it uh, did did live on uh, just in other ways, in other places. Yes. Um, Anthony, if I may, and I want you to correct me, but I kind of saw this, and I'm giving stuff away, but I think it's relevant to some of the detail. But a lot of what this was, the... They were going to change where things stood. They were going to em effectively em emulate one more day and uh, undo the marriage between Superman, uh, Lois, and Clark. 
Uh, they were going to make changes to Superman's power level significantly. Like one of their key ideas was we're going to amplify his powers by a factor of three, and we're going to amplify his intelligence by a factor of three. So they were going to undo the marriage. They were going to change his power set. And then we're going to do other things with respect to the villains. Um, I want and I want to let you add anything I might have missed there, but I, I, I do want to give that because I think it's it's critical to some of the conclusions we're going to be speaking about. Yes, absolutely. And so, uh, so I'm glad you shared that because I think I've you know I've, I've buried the lead enough already. You know, let's just we'll come out and say it. And you already hit on you know the, the couple of the most major uh, aspects of this pitch. But yes, the intention of this creative team was to undo the marriage between Lois and Clark in a manner extremely reminiscent of what would follow a few years later in the Spider-Man books with One More Day and the dissolution of the marriage uh, between Peter Parker and Mary Jane. So that was one major aspect. You also hit on this increase in Superman's power level, which, again, Morrison would really play with that idea in All-Star Superman. And then, uh, I don't think you said this explicitly, and this was... The part, more than anything else, although I have major, major reservations about the Clark Lois bit, but uh, where the pitch lost me, unfortunately, was <laughs> was right at the very beginning with <laughs> their view of the character. Uh, their take on it is that Superman is is the true character, is the essence, and Clark really is more of a disguise. It's, it's a tether to his past. It's, um, you know, a, a part of him for sure, but their view is sort of that uh, once... Clark, you know, reached puberty, reached maturation, and his powers kicked in that, as the pitch says, he became an alien. He, you know, he became sort of this other person. And so the Clark Kent identity is with him, but it's more of a way to allow him, uh, I guess, to sort of have a break, to interact with humanity, to have that connection to his past, but that it really is ultimately a disguise. And that, for me, really runs counter to how I see the character. But uh, I think the three, I think the three largest uh, aspects of this pitch are that view of the Clark Superman dichotomy, the dissolution of the marriage and the increase in power levels. Uh, would you agree? Those are sort uh, totally. of the, those are the main ideas. Absolutely. Those are the three legs of the stool. I very much agree. And to take one of your ideas uh, that we're simpatico on this, I really disliked the, the idea that, Clark is who he was and Superman is who he is now. I mean, I, I did follow the idea that his power level increased, um, you know, during his teenage years, but they almost portrayed it as they were really embracing and fostering that he's an alien. And they got into this godlike, godlike uh, power level and godlike view. And, and clearly in the, in the movie, um, Man of Steel, they did a little bit of that. But I really did not care for any of that with respect to um, he's an alien. He's a god. He's so far above us that he has difficulty relating to humanity. I definitely disagreed with that. Um, and the whole uh, Messiah notion, that, that was kind of a subtle extension of it. I also disliked that. Yeah, and and it's again, it's this is where my inner conflict comes in because again, I love these creators and Wade in particular, and I look at what he did in Birthright, and I feel he just nailed the character. Uh, and so to read this pitch, uh, you know, it, it was it was disappointing, and you know, I know you've heard this from me many times over the many years we've known each other, and listeners, fair warning, I'm probably going to say this a lot on this podcast, but it's the way I view the character, and I think that. 
you know, again, I, as I said before, I think there are aspects where, you know, there's there's room for different interpretations. And I guess with this, ultimately, you know, I, I think there is too. And we've seen all different versions. I mean, you look at the Christopher Reeve, you know, Superman movies, and they're very much, you know, Clark was that disguise. And he was, you know, actually, they, they call that out in the pitch here. They call it a, a cartoon, you know, that it was like a cartoonish performance when he was Clark. And uh, I liked that in the sense that it gave us, I think, the most convincing uh, reason for why people wouldn't be able to recognize, you know, Clark as Superman. But uh, this whole idea that Clark is just this facade, uh, to me, it doesn't ring true. And so the, the bit that I've you've heard from me and that listeners will continue to hear from me is that, you know, I don't think it's quite right to view this as binary, like either it's either Clark the reporter or Superman as the true character. I've always felt, and maybe this is because I watched Smallville on television religiously for a decade but I've always felt that Clark on the farm represents who he really is. And that when he's Clark the reporter and when he's Superman, you know, there's an element of disguise in both. Um, and so, again, I don't think it's necessarily binary. And I definitely don't like this idea that, again, Clark is just this disguise that, you know, uh, allows him to take a breather or whatever it might be. Uh, I, I just feel like it does a disservice to the character. It does a disservice to the Kents. I mean, obviously, the values that they raised him with are still at play. I mean, I recognize that, but uh, I don't know. I think it just it uh, it takes away more than it adds. I don't know. What's your view? I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that, that it does a disservice and just really setting up the dichotomy. Um, but if I may, one thing I wanted to say, and I want to get your feedback and your insight on this, as I digested this i saw this whole pitch and i'm not trying to take anything away from tom pyre or mark miller but morrison's over the silver age you know stuff morrison did in batman with the back the black case book i saw so much of this as being a return to the silver age um for a number of reasons like you know one of their ideas was hey we're gonna like we said earlier they're gonna amp up his power level they're gonna also amp up his intelligence and a lot of the stuff they spoke about was that he would be the ultimate polymath. He would have curiosity, a boundless interest in everything. And and during the Silver Age, and I'm going to go on a tear for a couple of minutes, but I'm a real Silver Age fan. I grew up loving Superman in the Silver Age when he was written by uh, Edmund Hamilton and Otto Binder, and Kurt Swan was the artist. But there were a lot of notions in that just honed right in on the Silver Age, you know, amping up his intelligence. Because in Silver Age, he was he had one of his powers was super intelligence. He had total recall. He could read and speak every language on Earth. Um, but they also spoke about, like you said, the separation between the two. And then after after they do the dissolution of the marriage, they fall back on the old Silver Age and Golden Age. Lois loves Superman, but Clark, Clark just kind of sits there uh, feeling insecure and kind of goes, uh, you know, why doesn't she no notice me for the millionth time? I think that was one of the sentences they put in here. But really making the Fortress of Solitude a key part of their whole pitch. And boy, that was such a throwback to what I grew up with when I, when I was reading books when I was 10 and 11 years old. The Fortress of Solitude for Superman the Silver Age was this real magical world. It was huge. It was a, a world unto itself. I mean, you had 
it was his laboratory up there. He had all his computers. He had his uh, uh, science rooms. He had access to Candor and Phantom Zone. He had his robots. He had his armory. Um, so they embraced all of that. You know, they had he had his interplanetary zoo, um, and they even went a little bit further. I think in this pitch, they spoke about in addition to all those things, the armory, Candor. Um, uh, the map of Krypton, the, the interplanetary zoo, they also spoke about he would have access to this, I think they called it the the infant, infant universe of QQ, um, where Superman could go into the, uh, different dimensions and different universes, and in one of them he would go in and be the hero Hyperman. So they really, really, I think, went back and embraced the notions of the Silver Age, and I think that's really tied directly to Morrison. He did it with Batman, and, and also Wade's love of the Silver Age. Yeah, you know, as you're talking about the Fortress and Morrison in particular, I had a note, I made a note uh, on the pitch, because there's a lengthy uh, description of what the Fortress of Solitude would be like in this revamped <laughs> Superman line, and... There's no doubt in my mind that Morrison wrote that. <laughs> it, yeah. re it reads like classic Morrison. And, you know, you hit on, on a lot of the aspects there. And that was actually one of the main things that I wanted to ask you in particular. I think, I mean, we've, we always have great conversations about comics. And recently, you know, Superman in particular, we've been having, you know, wonderful chats and I've enjoyed them tremendously. And one of the reasons why I love talking to you in particular is that, you know, you've been reading comics since since the 60s, right? So you've seen yes. all of these different iterations. You've seen the evolution. And, you know, there, there's this idea that they start with at the very beginning of this pitch, right off the bat, this notion that uh, every 15 years there's a need uh, to sort of refresh these these characters. And uh, they sort of cite, you know, the numerous, uh, uh, you know, examples of this. Uh, and at the time, most recently, it was the, you know, the burn revamp uh, in, the, in the late 80s following Crisis on Infinite Earths. And you know, as the turn of the century was approaching, we were, we were getting to the point of another one of those 15-year uh, cycles. I guess, the, you know, the question I have for you is, because I agree, I mean, it seems like this would have brought back a lot of those pre-crisis elements, and it, it, again, seemed to be a pivot away from uh, the burn era of the character, where he his power levels were... Uh, much more modest. There was much more of an emphasis on Clark. You know, Clark was who he was. Superman was what he could do. Uh, obviously, you know, Clark and Lois were in a relationship for the majority of the 90s. They got married. So a lot of what's at play here really seems to be uh, pivoting away from Byrne and, and back more into pre-crisis ideas. And I guess the thing that I'm especially curious about to hear from you is, as someone who grew up reading those stories, I mean, do you do you look at this pitch and think, wow, this is great. Like they're bringing back all the stuff that I grew up reading. Or do you look at it and say, I think this is a step backwards. Um, somewhere in the middle. Um, give me a second. What uh, the good and the bad, like when I was 10 and 11 years old, there were a number of stories where the backdrop would be the fortress. Um, Superman might take Jimmy Jimmy Olsen there, or there there. I do remember one really good story where uh, Superman and Supergirl were both up in the fortress, and one of his, one of Superman's trophies from another world. You know, something happened in the environment of Earth, and it released a certain gas, and it made Superman and Supergirl enemies. So they had a fight in the fortress, 
Um, and they each went into their, you know, the armory and got certain Kandorian or Kryptonian weapons. So the fortress was a real backdrop for stories, but there was other elements. Anthony, I'll tell you, uh, I really like Burns run because it made Superman much more grounded. It kind of, it, it Clark was not the milk toast. He was a very accomplished journalist in his own right. Um, so the elements of the, the silver age got to the point where it got silly, you know, like red kryptonite would give Superman the head of an ant or, you know, uh, Jimmy Olsen would be a giant turtle boy. It really went kind of too, um, far too creative without, without boundaries. And it just became silly. So Burns relaunch, I thought made him much more grounded. Um, and I'm, I'm impressed with Burns relaunch. Like you say, to me, the quintessential uh, origin story is Birthright. But boy, I think Byrne did a great job kind of dusting things off and going back to basics. Yeah, and, and I appreciate, I, you know, I love always getting your insight on that. And, you know, you use the word grounded a couple of times. And it's, that's what's especially interesting to me, or one of the things that's especially interesting about this pitch is that, you know, one of the criticisms, right, that you always hear about Superman is that, he, you know, he's not relatable and or it's hard to come up with credible threats for him. And I've never, you know, I've never agreed with that. And I think one of the things that I sort of realized, you know, I started with the death of Superman. And so when your first exposure to a character is that character's death, the whole notion of, oh, well, he's too powerful. He can't be defeated, like really doesn't carry any weight <clears throat> because I've seen that. No, there is a limit to his power. Um, but, you know, those are some of the common criticisms. And it just seems to me that uh, amping up his power level and uh, sort of putting Clark in the back seat, you know, I don't know how that would combat those <laughs> those criticisms. I feel like it would only make it harder in certain respects to make the character relatable, you know, at least from, you know, from from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I do. And uh, I, I please you're you're the pilot and I'm kind of the passenger. But I. uh I will share with you, there are a number of things I did like about this pitch. I don't want to cut you off, but we just have to take a real quick commercial break, and then uh, let's get right into you know what you liked and what you didn't like. We'll get more specific. Um, so just cool. hold that thought, and uh, we'll be right back to the action in a moment, right after these word, uh, this word about our sponsors. Submissions are now open for the March season of the Brightside Tavern Film Festival in Jersey City, New Jersey. Visit filmfreeway.com to submit your film now. Also, be sure to listen to the podcasts hosted by the festival's organizer, C.J. Cullen. You can find the official Hang On To Your Shorts podcast, as well as the Cullen On Film podcast, via a shared universe network. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday, and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics, and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. And we're back. All right, so yeah, let's get into uh, more specifically about what you liked and didn't like. And let me just say, just as, as one more disclaimer, um... You know, I, I, you know, as I'm sharing my view on the pitch and the specifics of it, I recognize that, 
you know, I grew up reading the Burn Superman. Uh, you know, again, I started with Death of Superman. I read all through the 90s and beyond. And so, and I watched Lois and Clark, which was, you know, very much born out of that that view of the character. And so, you know, that was so ingrained in me that I do recognize that maybe part of the reason why this ruffled my feathers a little bit, <laughs> you know, is that it, it ran so counter to the Superman I knew. And I do recognize, although I know you're kind of, you know, somewhere in the middle here, but I do recognize that for people who, you know, grew up with a different version of Superman, this might have felt like a return to form. Um, so I, I fully recognize that. I just want to put that out there. Uh, but yeah, please tell me, Rich. And I think I know one of the things that you're going to you're going to say is one of your likes, but I want to I'll leave that to you. OK, <laughs> um, there were many things I liked about this. Um, uh, and, and just let me kind of collect my thoughts. Um I did like, and like you said, it's depending upon how it's printed, it might be either seven pages or 12 pages. But I did like um, the idea to increase his intelligence, but more so to increase his curiosity. Um, Because in a lot of the young Silver Age stories I read, uh, he was very, very much Jor-El's son, Jor-El being a scientist. and He had an aptitude for science. Um, I liked, though, that one of the things that there was a paragraph on, they spoke about how they were really going to um, portray him and his interest in humanity, his great compassion, um, and how Clark was really a sounding board for everyone, either at work or in Metropolis, who had problems. He was a superb listener. So I really liked the focus on his curiosity and his compassion. Um for the listeners, there were a couple of other ideas in this pitch that I found interesting that, you know, again, they're going to, they're going to dissolve the marriage. Um, and Anthony and I, we both used the words, Hey, this is akin to one more day, which came a few, few years later with Spider-Man. But the notion here, I found the basis of doing this very interesting. They were really positioning it that, you know, memories are not electrical. Um, in your mind, they're really a chemical reaction. So Brainiac came up with this this way to uh, make Lois's memories of her husband, Superman or Clark, make those memories poison her. Um, so incrementally, she was dying. She was being killed. She was being poisoned by virtue of her love for for Clark. So I thought that was a really powerful notion. And then the way they worked around it, they did build up to it. And I think one of their ideas was they really want to build up their love and then have it come crashing down. But they were going to use uh, Mixlick's Pillix to magically um, save Lois. But, you know, when he's in our dimension, he he's mischievous. He's like Loki. So he couldn't do it easily. He had to do it in a way that would hurt Clark. But I thought that whole idea about the chemical poisoning and then the, the you know, again, it's it came seven or eight years later, the one more day thing. I did like just a couple of more things. I liked maybe three other things. I really liked how they were going to try to inject a little bit of randomness in, in his rocket being um, from Krypton back to Earth, they were going to kind of make it a little bit more random and not as perfectly known that he would land on Earth. And I kind of thought that was pretty good. It would it would speak more to the desperation of Jor-El and Lara to save their child. Um, 
but they wouldn't have certitude of where he was going to land or how he might do things. I, I would even be fine going, yep, the rocket can go to Earth, but we really don't know the outcome. You know, so I'd, I'd want a degree of um, confidence in his parents that their child, their infant, will be safe. But I don't want it so uh, foreordained or foreknown that it's it's sterile. So I did like a little bit of the randomness, um, you know, like the the computer that searches out for the perfect planet kind of bombs out, and only the the um, safety mechanisms of the rocket get him to Earth. I liked that. Um, I liked the, they did have the notion in there that um, that he was going to be trained by the JSA. I think they said maybe the Atom, maybe others. I think that would be fascinating because if his powers manifested themselves when he was a teenager, um, if he could interact with the JSA, it's not just the atom. I mean, you could have like Jay Garrick uh, give him techniques on how to use super speed, and you could also play up the difference in their powers. Like Jay can um, vibrate his molecules to phase through things. Superman can't. And you could have like Hawkman or, or uh, Starman or Green Lantern uh, help him learn how to fly. So I think I think the pot- potential to use the JSA as teachers um, was interesting. And then the other stuff I liked was how they portrayed the villains. Um, just real fast, Luke Luther's. You know, even in a realm of geniuses, he's a super genius. You know, they were really going to play up uh, his intellect. You know, he could you know he could play twenty chess grandmasters at once, and he could read. Um, you know, Urdu uh, through through a Walkman, he developed himself. Um, so his phenomenal, uh, off the scales, off the charts, genius level was interesting. But they also tapped back into his ego, the same way John Byrne did. That he set himself up to be the greatest person on earth, and then he was devastated because Superman kind of stole his limelight. And then the very last thing I liked was how they portrayed Brainiac that he is just no compassion, no humanity whatsoever, and that Clark and Superman is really scared of him. It's the, he's the one villain that he really fears. So I'm going to pause there. I, uh, I know I threw a lot at you. <laughs> no, I, was, uh, I enjoyed very much you know, getting your take on all of that, and I was trying to keep my thoughts in order uh, you know, about uh, how I would respond to the points that you raised. And for the most part, I agree with almost everything you said, and uh, you hit on a lot of the things that I did also like about the pitch. And, you know, just to be clear, even though, again, I'm glad that we ended up with the Loeb-Kelly run instead, uh, there is some cool and interesting stuff in here. Uh, And I guess maybe sort of working my way backwards or jumping around a bit, uh, I agree with you. I think the take on the villains was interesting, and they specifically cite this idea of um, you know, each villain sort of uh, representing an aspect of Superman's uh, personality or background or, or what have you, you know, taken to taken to the extreme or taken in a wrong direction. And, you know, Brainiac, of course, is an, an obvious example of, you know, the, the alien side of him, no humanity, no compassion. Uh, and there were numerous other examples, and they talked about Bizarro and Mixius Pitalik and Toyman and Prankster. And I think uh, the take on the villains was actually pretty cool. I did, um, I did dig that. Uh, we, we need to spend more time on the Lois and Clark of it all, but I do agree with you that if they were going to dissolve the marriage, the way they came up with it, and you laid it out uh, beautifully, I don't really need to add much to that, other than to say that sort of the lead up to uh, what you described about how uh, it would actually be undone was that uh, Luther and Brainiac 
uh, discover Clark's secret, expose it to the world. They kind of run him through this gauntlet of his villains, so he's like really off his game. Uh, and then comes this this move that you described of Brainiac turning Lois's uh, chemical memory of of Clark's identity uh, to poison, and so he has to turn to Mixius Pitalik. Again, I don't like. Well, we'll spend more time on that, but I will say I think it does sort of quote unquote fix one of the major problems with Spider-Man One More Day, which was, and we could do a whole podcast on that, but for anyone (laughs) not familiar, you know, in that case, Spider-Man made a deal with Mephisto because his elderly aunt lay dying. And I think in that case, you know, not to be cold towards Aunt May, but, you know, this was a frail elderly woman who had lived a very long life. And, (laughs) you know, here you have Peter giving up his life with, you know, the woman he loves, the woman he's married to, you know, to save his aunt. And I think that that aspect of it, among other other parts of that story, were kind of tough for fans to stomach. Here, you know, it was a case where Lois herself was was literally in in dire jeopardy. It was, you know, a, a very difficult situation. So I think they did a little bit of a better job there. Uh, and so, yes, I think I the, the how of it uh, was, was clever. Um, and and I'll, I'll give them that. I, I too really like the JSA angle. I thought that was really cool. That's what I, I knew you were going to bring up because I know how much uh, I know how much you love the Justice Society of America, and I think it's cool. I think uh, you know some of the examples that you gave you know would have been great to see, and I think it's a an awesome way to sort of you know weave Clark into this larger uh, you know DC universe mythology. So I think that's really cool. I really like that a lot. Uh, where you and I differ a little bit is on the Jor-El bit where. As you said in this pitch, uh, Jor-El and Lara don't know, uh, you know, they're not purposely sending Clark to Earth. And, you know, I'm a relatively new father, and so maybe this is fueled a little bit <laughs> by that. But I think, you know, there's enough uncertainty sending baby Kal-El out through the stars toward Earth. You don't know if he'll make it to Earth. You don't know what's waiting for him on Earth. I think it's risky enough. I don't know that we need to add this additional layer of they don't even know what planet he's going to. I, I just, um, I think that's a, a bridge too far. Now, that being said, and, oh, no, go ahead. No, please. I totally agree with what you said. I mean, um, I do want his parents to have comfort and confidence. Um, uh, yeah, I do. I, I didn't want to portray it. I, I, from the way I read their pitch, it almost is like there was too much certitude. But as you articulate it, you know, look, he's he's escaping this exploding planet. We know he's going to go to Earth, but there's unknowns. You know, it's a more primitive culture and stuff like that. Or, you know, he's an infant. Who's going to take care of him? So I'm 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 walking back some of the things I said. I just didn't want it to be so perfect that. Uh, because, you know, there's been other stories like where Thomas Wayne goes to Krypton and, you know, talks to Jor-El and stuff like that. Uh, I do think some of the things have gone a little too far. So I, I want the parents to, you know, if I may, uh, pass on knowing that their their child is reasonably safe. Um, and, and that's probably the better way to say it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I think we're on the same page and, you know, to your point about some, some iterations going too far, what I was actually going to say was there's this episode of Smallville uh, in season three where we find out that Jor-El actually spent time on Earth years ago uh, and met uh, the parents or grandparents of, uh, of Jonathan Kent. And so 
the whole idea was that, uh, you know, not only was Earth a specific destination, but that the Kents were actually chosen by Jor-El. That, I think, is a step too far. Now, on Agreed. Smallville, you know, they needed to find, you know, they had 10 seasons, so they had to keep finding, like, these new layers that they could peel back. But I think that's a step too far. But I do, I like the idea of Jor-El at least knowing about Earth. I think there's enough risk, enough uncertainty. Um, you almost get to the point where if they're just shooting him into space, hoping for the best, and... That's, that's- it's too extreme. <laughs> it's almost too extreme. I mean, this we could have a whole philosophical debate about this, but you know, like as a parent, I, you know, I I don't know. Obviously, you don't want your your son to die with you on on this exploding planet, but at the same time, you could be sending him off to a fate worse than death. So, you know, so that's where um, they lost me a little bit there. But I I get again, I get the reasoning behind it that 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 you articulated. Uh, we're talking about Jor-El. Uh, can we shift and talk about Clark's uh, earthly father for a moment? Because that's, a, that's another aspect of this where uh, they advocate for the death of, of Pa Kent. Um, what did you think about that? Uh, I'm so ambivalent on that. I mean, one of, the, one of the, I think, phrases that this team, this quartet used was, you know, we, we, Clark's on top of the world, you know? I mean, they, they did want to separate Clark and Superman. And... Both of us are opposed to that, and your your audience will hear it in a different discussion. Um, I um, I'm very much a big fan of Clark, but I can see their point. Like everything was going his way. Like you know, even it burn run, um, he had certain um, weightlifting equipment in his apartment to you know kind of explain his physique, and he had so many things going for him. I'm hurt because I have a, a tremendous affinity. I think Burns' reintroduction of his parents, plural, was just so, so good. And it helped him even when he was a young Superman, say, a Superman who was 27 or 28. Um, so I can see the how killing Pa Kent would inject tragedy and hurt and pain, but I'm not a fan of it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I agree with you. And again, I recognize, as I said before, this is probably in large part uh, due to the fact that, you know, I grew up reading the the burn version of Superman where his parents are there and they're that sounding board for him. And, you know, I get what the creators here are saying that, you know, you don't want to use that so much as a crutch where, you know, Clark can just always get advice from the, as they describe, the infinitely wise, you know, Jonathan Kent. But, you know, one of one of the things that I've always loved about Superman is that, at least in the versions that I've read, you know, he's not driven by tragedy. Um, you know, he has the death of his planet, right? That's that's part of mm-hmm. his history, but it's not a planet that he knew. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's an element of, you know, he doesn't want to lose another world. And I think that's enough. I mean, we have, you know, superhero after superhero driven by the death of a, of a father figure or, or a mother as well, or both parents, you know, in the case of Batman. So, you know, it just it just feels unnecessary. And I think that's one of the things that, makes him relatable, that uh, humanizes him, and that sets him apart from the other characters. That being said, I'll argue against myself here a little bit. As I said earlier that, you know, there are aspects of the character where I can kind of, I can bend a little bit. And Pa Kent and whether he lives or dies, this is actually something I've kind of, I'm, I don't want to say I'm on the fence because I really ultimately am in the camp of I wanting him, I want him alive. But I always go back to Superman the movie. Uh, with Christopher Reeve and 
that scene of young Clark uh, at the, the gravesite of Jonathan. He's standing there with Martha. And I get choked up every time I see that scene where he says, all these powers, like everything I can do, and I couldn't save him. And so to me, it's like if Jonathan's death serves the, serves the role of, you know, teaching Clark this lesson that for as powerful as he is, he can't save everyone, but he's going to try anyway. And it sort of marks the end of, you know, his adolescence and his, his passing into adulthood. I get it and I'm okay with it. But ultimately, I don't think it's it's really uh, necessary. But again, I, I'm again, I sort of do go back and forth on that one. I hear you. I hear you. And uh, what's so interesting is Byrne runs contrary to all the previous origins. I mean, you spoke about the Christopher Reeve um, Donner uh, movie with Glenn Ford. Uh, later on in time, we're going to talk about the adventures of Superman from like 1953. And uh, once again, uh, Pa Kent, um, even, it wasn't Jonathan at that time, he dies very abruptly. Same same as Glenn Ford movie. And then even in a number of the Golden Age stories, uh, Pa Kent uh, dies. In the Silver Age, both parents died very close to one another. Um you articulated very eloquently. I'm not absolute. I can kind of see shades of gray, but I really land on the side. I feel better in the stories when Clark can turn to his parents for advice or just perspective or being a sounding board. So, you know, I I don't feel absolutely one way or the other. Uh, It's not binary in my mind, but I lean towards more. I'm much, much, much happier with uh, the parents being alive, both parents. Yeah. And I mean, look, not to make light of it, but it's one of those things where, you know, it's like if you go to watch a new Batman TV series or movie, it's like, well, you know, whether it's the first scene or a little bit later, you're going to watch those parents get gunned down in Crime Alley. And it's become a similar thing with Superman. It's like whether it's the TV shows or the movie, it's like sooner or later, Pa Kent's grabbing that arm and he's going down. Yeah, you know, and uh, so again, I, I, you're right. I mean, in in more tellings than not, you know, Pa Kent dies, and I mean, currently as we're speaking, uh, I know the Kents are are back in the comics, but um, you know, even in the you know the the post crisis, the burn, you know, the burn era, uh, as you uh, if you were if you will, uh, you know, when Jeff Johns was writing action comics, they killed off Jonathan Kent, you know, and that obviously took place much later in Clark's journey. Uh, which I yes. especially dislike because, again, I'm open to it if it if it plays out earlier, uh, you know, a- along his journey. I don't think it I don't know. I just don't think it adds as much once he's already a fully grown adult and he, you know, he's Clark and he's Superman. I don't know I, if it's going to happen. I think I kind of like it to mark the end of his time in Smallville. Um, but I think we've thoroughly uh, we've thoroughly covered what's really just a few paragraphs in, the <laughs> in this pitch here. Um as far as other things, though, that I don't really have a strong opinion on, and maybe people would be surprised by this, uh, they mentioned doing away with the uh, the red underwear. I'm fine with that. I really, uh, I'm not, I'm not one of those fans who you know really thinks he has to have the, the the red underwear on the outside of his costume. It's fine. I mean, obviously, it's an iconic costume, and that's how he's known the world over. But uh, you know, there have been instances, of course, in the comics and and in the movies where he you know he doesn't have it, and I think. The costume still looks cool. I think as long as there's a belt of some sort to break up the blue, I think it works. So, 
that part didn't offend me. Do you do you have an opinion, Rich, on the on the red underpants, the red trunks? Uh I did see some of the images where they were no longer the full red trunks, but more of a red belt. And I kind of liked that. I kind of liked that. I thought that was much more of a modernization. Um, so I kind of lean on the side that I was okay with the removal of the red trunks. Um, yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, you know, they do talk a bit about uh, the Daily Planet and the other supporting cast. And I, I want to, so I have to tip my hat to them here. Um, because one of the things that they that they specify in this pitch is that uh, they really wanted to bring the focus back to Superman and not make it such a sprawling soap opera cast. And, you know, for people who remember the Superman books at the time, um, the supporting cast had grown quite large. Um, and it's been a while since I've revisited a lot of those mid to late 90s story. So, you know, my memory of it is somewhat vague, but there were a lot of other characters floating around and it's probably fair to say that, you know, Superman had had taken at least a little bit of a backseat. So this whole idea of really drilling down on Superman and really making him the center of it, uh, I I do think was a smart move. Um, And, you know, they talk about the Daily Planet and some of the supporting cast. One of the things that they planned to do with Lois was make Lois a a foreign correspondent, what was interesting is that in the Loeb Kelly run, they actually made Clark a foreign correspondent uh, at the beginning of their run. That actually made a tremendous amount of sense because that accounted for why Clark would disappear for, for long stretches. So that actually made a lot of sense. In this pitch, it would have been Lois uh, who was, you know, who was working overseas. Um, and I liked I liked their take on Jimmy Olsen. Uh, and I think you see that play out in the, the Loeb Kelly run as well, where, you know, there's this mutual respect between uh, Clark and Jimmy or Jim. You know, as Clark yep. calls him, he treats him as an adult in a way that the other people around them really don't. Agree. Totally agree. I, I did like that. And I didn't I didn't know that. Um, uh, I think they referenced the radio show that Clark is the only one who calls him Jim. And that that respect that, hey, Jim, you're an adult. Oh, yeah, I, I really liked that. And I thought the definitions for the supporting cast were very good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You tell me. You're. You're again. You're the. You're the pilot, and I'm the passenger. Well, I mean, I guess um, the last. The last major thing that uh, you know we've already talked about the um, the how of the dissolution of the Lois and Clark marriage, and uh, you know her losing her memory of of Clark's identity. We've talked about how they would have gone about that, and I, again, I seem like we were in agreement that you know it was a some somewhat clever way to do it. Um, again, I think people listening to this again will probably say, "Oh, that was one more day." But keep in mind, this was written years before one more day. Yeah, this was almost nine years before, nine years earlier. Exactly. But let's talk about the fact of it. Uh, this was again the, the 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 two things that where they completely lost me were again the the emphasis on you know Superman is who he really is, not Clark, and doing away with um, the relationship between these two, um, which to me you know, has, has always been one of the, uh, you know, most important and relatable, uh, you know, aspects of the character, uh, at least in the, the versions that I grew up reading and watching. Um, so, I mean, how did you feel about the fact that the marriage was going to be undone? Uh, very disappointed. Um, and I'm going to take cue from you. Uh, for me, while, uh, while I voiced things that I found appealing and interesting and I liked, for me, the dislikes of this pitch outweighed the likes. 
And just to tee it up and then you expand where you'd like me to go, there were, there were really four things I disliked. Um, undoing the marriage was clearly one of them. And I'll delve more into that in a minute. But just to give you an idea of the other things so you can, you can pinpoint the discussion. Of the four things, undoing the marriage was one. Making him more powerful by a factor of three, I think, is a mistake because who in God's name is he going to fight? Who's going to present a challenge to him? So I think amplifying his powers is a mistake. Um, separating him from Clark, I think, and, and going into that space where he's an alien and he's not one of us. And the only thing tethering him to Earth is the values instilled by the Kents, the humanitarian stuff. I think that separation from Clark was was wrong. And embracing that he's an alien, he's a god, he's a messiah, I, I didn't care for that. So those were the, the pronounced things I, I did not like. But in, in response to your question, um, I think undoing the marriage and everything we've seen. I'm a huge fan of Tomasi's run where where they you know have Lois and Clark and for for a few issues they had a young like six or seven year old son. I thought those were fantastic, but but even the other stories where Lois is a partner and she can she can coach him or give insight or be a sounding board exchange ideas. I think they really, really moved the the marriage forward and made the stories more appealing to older readers. So I, I'm a big fan of preserving the marriage, and I think it added to the story. I, I could not agree more. And, you know, it's the sort of thing, I'll, I can even put the marriage aside, but the whole idea of, you know, them erasing her knowledge of his identity uh, and reinstating the Clark-Lois-Superman love triangle and that really rubbed me the wrong way. And that was actually one of the one of the things that I really wanted to ask you because, uh, again, when I started reading with the death of Superman, she already knew his secret. They were engaged uh, at that point uh, when I started reading. So that was the version that I just I grew up with. That's that's the way it always was. And you know, again, I watched Lois and Clark in you know in the mid '90s, uh, you know, the television series. And the first couple of seasons, she doesn't know, and they play around with you know, with that triangle. Um, but then by the start of season three, you know, she's in on it and it gives it a completely new dynamic. And, uh, again, I, you know, I don't mean to always go back to Smallville, but it, it's Smallville's my favorite. And, uh, you know, watching that show for as long as I did, you know, the Clarks, even though he wasn't yet Superman and there wasn't a secret identity per se, uh, he did have this secret about his origins and his powers. And, you know, over the course of 10 seasons, uh, you know, almost every, you know, cast, you know, every, almost every character in the cast would uh, sooner or later come to, to learn his secret. And even though they were able to mine a lot of drama and angst from the tension when, um, when the character didn't know the secret, whenever, whichever character we're talking about, whenever that character, uh, was let in on it or discovered the secret, it, it made the show better. Uh, it just opened up all of these new avenues and new dynamics and, Again, I just always felt like you you we you gained so much more than you ever lost. And so, you know, this this whole idea of like really taking a major step back with uh with Lois and Clark uh was just so disappointing to me. And the thing I wanted to ask is cuz you grew up reading stories with the with the love triangle where she couldn't tell them apart or and she was always trying to figure out Superman's secret identity and she loves Superman but not Clark. I mean, how gripping was that? I mean, you know, was was that interesting and entertaining enough that it would be worth going back to? 
Oh, well, I, I truly think it's your own age as a reader. I mean, to be as honest as possible, you know, when you're, when you're nine or 10 or 11 years old and, um, you know, like you're not the, the captain of the football team, you're not the popular kid. It, it's almost appealing to have that, to say, I identify with Clark, you know, if only, if only those pretty girls could see me when I take my glasses off, so to speak. So it's appealing to a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old who's not one of the popular squad. But as I grew up, as I aged, I want stories that are written on a different level. So I think it would have, I, I do think it depends on the age of the reader and their, their um, emotional background and where they are in their life. But I think on balance, the stories are better now where Lois is, I think it's a superb uh, role model. You know, she's his partner. They're partners in, in, they love one another. They're partners in life and they face problems together. I think that's an infinitely better portrayal. Um, and, and even like I said, I love Tomasi's run where they're parents and they have like a six year old son, and you know, how they're de- trying to deal with him and, and coach and, and, and instruct him. So I, land on the side of it the marriage or her knowledge of his identity i think is significantly it adds to the story and makes it a better story yeah i mean i also think that it it does her character a disservice if she can't tell them apart for that extended a period of time i mean you know like in the movies it's one thing because it's a two-hour runtime you know it's one thing but with a television series or you know an ongoing comic series four titles a month um you know, and not to have too geeky a conversation about this, but, you know, the whole question of how effective the disguise actually is. Uh, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say this. That's a, I should have said that earlier. In the Silver Age, again, I mean, he had more powers than you can count. Um, and, and we spoke about this. One of the, the tenets of this pitch was they're going to amp up his power level. Well, one of his powers, in, a different, in, in addition to super intelligence, total recall, I mean, the Superman I grew up with remembered Krypton. He knew he came. He had total recall. And they, they, they would attribute to, like, certain exposure to green kryptonite would uh, um, obviate some of his memories. But um, he also had one of his powers was super hypnosis. So there was a theory that people would, when they saw Clark, would see someone who had more of a receding hairline, who bent over more, who looked older than Superman, you know. Um, and that was one of his powers in the Silver Age. Uh, so it made it a little bit plausible that Lois, circa 1962 or 1969, would not see the two of them as being, hey, uh, Clark is just Superman with glasses and a blue suit. Gotcha. And, you know, fair enough uh, that they, you know, at least, uh, you know, attempted to account for that in story. Um, you know, we don't get they don't lay that out explicitly here that they were going to, you know, incorporate some of those other abilities that you mentioned, but, you know, they do spend a lot of time talking about Clark's enhanced power. So maybe they would have worked something like that in to better account for how she can tell them apart, um, which is fine. And I guess that would address, you know, the concern that I just raised, but, you know, overall it's like, as we, as we kind of wind down here and, and sum up, you know, I feel like what we're left with is, you know, a, a character more aligned with his, alien origins than his earthly ones who doesn't have the Kents uh, there as a sounding board who doesn't have his wife there as a partner who's 
more powerful and more removed. It just, I don't know, it, it takes the character uh, too far away from, uh, you know, the, the, the essence that I really respond to. And so are you comfortable at this point now? We've been talking for just over an hour. Uh, will you give us your final judgment? Are you glad that this didn't move forward? Do you think it, or, or do you think it was a missed opportunity? No, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved. It did not move forward. Um, I love Wade and you know, we've had many discussions about that. I even gave you a letter to carry to him, um, when you were in California. Um, but I think, uh, this being the road not taken, I'm glad they didn't take this road. Uh, again, I think m- probably the, the three biggest things, I think moving him more into the realm of being an alien, uh, is a mistake. I think d- dissolving her, the marriage and her knowledge, while it was innovative how they might have gone about it, I think it would have been a mistake. And I also think probably the, the thing that really struck me the most was amping up his power, I think, would have been so constraining to a writer because who's going to challenge him? Who's he going to fight? I mean, the guy was basically, you know, um, um, Doomsday and uh, was it uh, Mongol and uh, Darksider, like the only three guys that or could really give him a, a play for his, his powers. Who's he, who's he possibly going to go up against in the future? A hundred percent. And, you know, it's it's funny because I know, you know, I know you and I are both conflicted about this because we do both love Mark Wade. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, you mentioned when I when I met him. So I interviewed him for my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country. I mean, I he he came to my hotel room and we filmed an interview and I told him how much I love Superman Birthright. So it's like I, I love this guy and I love his work and I generally love his take on Superman. Um again, though, what's presented in this pitch, uh, and maybe it's an influence of, you know, the other writers, it wasn't just him, uh, but may, or maybe this was the way he saw the character at the time. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, and Anthony, to your point, sorry to interrupt, I really apologize. You and I have discussed this many times in the past. How shall I say it? I, where do these creators' own intrinsic ideas stop I mean, what sort of direction did they get from Eddie Berganza when they were given this this assignment? I mean, might he have said certain things that, okay, well, we're going to go in this direction, so here's how I would make it work. Uh, I, I don't know how much of it is the creator's ideas unto themselves versus um, an instruction or um, uh, just a path that uh, the editor, editors or management wanted them to take. Well, yes, that is an excellent point and a good question. And, you know, unfortunately something, you know, we don't know and I don't know that we'll ever get, uh, you know, an answer on that. But I guess let me ask, let me ask a harder question now. And this is one that I don't even know how to answer because, you know, we both, we both gave our, uh, you know, our take on whether, you know, we we, we wish this this had happened or we're glad that it didn't. But that's, and again, I do think we've really come at this, you know, we've shared our personal views, but we've also taken a more analytical look at it. But you know, ultimately it's, you know, what would we have wanted to see or not see? But do you think that, again, this is, I think the harder question. It's like, do you think that this would have helped the character, helped the sales, helped the overall line of, of books? Um, and again, this is a major, because we have no idea, but it's like, do you think that this ultimately would have been a positive for for the character and the character's place in the industry? I I don't. I don't, and I, I say that real quickly. I mean, I think about what they did in 2011 when they relaunched, and um, and then candidly, what five years later they undid it. I think I think they would have gotten a bounce out of this in 
in 2000. I think clearly you got, you know, uh, again, Morrison and Wade were hot. Um, but I don't think it would have lasted. Uh, so I think uh, sales would have increased on temporal level, but I don't know if it would have been um, sustainable. I think I, I, I would wonder where would they go two and a half or three years down the road after you've exhausted uh, some of these villains and the parasite and toy man, and you've exhausted all the, the magic of the fortress of solitude and Superman going into that, that infant universe to be hyperman. Where are you going to go next? So I think it's better for the character and the stories. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll say, listen, I've never read the Loeb Kelly run. I did read action 775. What's wrong with Cruz justice, the American way. But I, I haven't read any of those things, so uh, I kind of made a note to myself to read more of the Kelly and Loeb run, uh, just for my own self-knowledge. But I did love the Burn run. Again, I thought it, it made Superman more interesting um, when they, they, they stripped all the, the extremes of the Silver Age away, and they got him more grounded. So I, I think it would have been a mistake if they had gone with this. You, you brought up a couple of fantastic points, uh, because I guess the question that I posed to you was something that, you know, again, I was trying to play devil's advocate with myself, and, and I asked myself that question. But your points are, are very well taken, uh, because, yes, we saw in the New 52, uh, you know, an instance where both the Kents were dead and uh, Lois and Clark were not together and she didn't know his secret. And, you know, again, as you said, the 52 as a whole, you know, while it gave, a, you know, a sales bump at the time, ultimately they undid it. And... You know, we, we keep comparing uh, the undoing of the Lois and Clark relationship to One More Day. You look at the backlash to that. So, yeah, it's like I don't know <laughs> ultimately how this would have been received. One other thing that I just wanted to mention quickly is, um, you know, since we've been comparing this to One More Day, I had major, major misgivings about that. And I still think it was a mistake for various reasons. And maybe one day I'll do a whole podcast on Spider-Man and I'll talk about it. But there... I can understand it a smidge more because I do recognize that for a large period in, in the Spider-Man history, you know, the, his love life, you know, got a lot of play and there were numerous romantic interests and they really played up that, you know, that soap opera angle with Superman. I mean, I know there have been other love interests, but I, and again, I've read very little of the, you know, the, the pre-crisis Superman that will change over the course of this podcast, but I, I really haven't. But to me, it's just it doesn't seem like that uh, that soap opera angle, uh, you know, was was as prevalent. And so, it, again, it just seems like, you know, that's just one less reason to to try to bring it back. If that makes yeah. sense. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yeah. You know, um, but but your 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 points are very well taken. And, you know, I'll say this to anyone listening to this who, you know, disagrees with us. That's perfectly fine. And if you're like, oh, man, like that really would have been great. You know, if you love this whole idea of, you know, an enhanced Superman, you know, read All-Star Superman by Graham Morrison. And if you love the idea of, uh, you know, Lois and Clark not being together and there being that triangle and all of that, read the new 52 Superman. Or again, certainly there are, you know, tons of pre-crisis stories for you to choose from as well. But, you know, we, we've seen a lot of the stuff that's discussed here. We have seen, uh, you know, in, in various iterations. So it, it is there if you want it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there anything I, else that, that you wanted to say, Rich? Anything that, because I know you had your list that you wanted to, is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to share before we sign off? 
No, I covered every, I mean, you were very gracious and patient. Uh, I covered all the things that occurred to me. Um, so yeah, I'm, I thank you for this opportunity. And if I may, I'd urge your, your, you know, to your audience, to your listeners, you could probably read this whole thing in one third the time that Anthony and I have discussed it. So, um, like, like Anthony said, Google weighed uh, Superman proposal or Superman 2000. It's an interesting read. I mean, and, and I guess the one thing I would say is Anthony, you know, I'm always ambivalent about this. I feel sorry when writers or artists are instructed to take a character in a different direction. And sometimes you got to do it to re-energize the character. Um, other times, you know what? Less is more. Leave it alone. Um, so I'm always ambivalent. I don't want to denigrate a creator uh, because now and then they have to do something to jumpstart sales or reawaken and reignite interest in the character. But the idea might be one thing and the execution might be something else. That is a very, very fair point and well said. And, you know, kind of on that note, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because it really is worth mentioning. And, you know, over the course of this podcast, uh, I am going to revisit the, the 90s because, again, it's, I was a kid reading it for the first time and it, I really haven't gone back to it since. But, and this is not, you know, to put down the work of the creators at the time, but, you know, by the time the 90s were winding down, you know, Superman, the character, and, you know, publishing-wise, the line of books, you know, they needed a shot in the arm. And, uh, you know, we'll do other episodes in the future where we kind of, uh, you know, uh, dissect that a little bit more. But I think the long and short of it is that a number of the creators had been working on the books for for years at that point. Uh, and, you know, I think there's a level of burnout that's natural, you know, for any creative person, especially if you're, you know, working with one character for that period of time. And the other aspect is, you know, they had this this huge, massive success with the death of Superman, you know, in 92, 93. And I think for most of the rest of the 90s, they were sort of always trying to to replicate that in some way. And, you know, you saw all sorts of things like the electric Superman, Superman Red, Superman Blue. You know, there was all kind of stuff. And, you know, I think the law of diminishing returns was really at play there. And so by the time you yes. got to the turn of the century, you did need a shot in the arm. And so to your point, Rich, I think, um, yeah, I think the these were noble efforts undertaken by people who really, you know, care about the character and have a love for the character. Um, ultimately, as I keep saying, I'm glad we ended up with the Loeb Kelly run because I think it it did address a lot of what wasn't working in the books at the time. I mean, they really did focus back on the the core the core cast of characters. Um, they brought an element of humanity to the books that uh, that I've always responded to. Uh, you know, the the Clark and Lois dynamic was was definitely a highlight. Um, so I think they they did what the what the books needed at the time. And obviously with this pitch that we've been discussing, you know, it was a different direction and it, it might have been interesting. Um, again, ultimately, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad it didn't move forward. I'm still really glad that we got the stories that we did get from these creators like Birthright and like All-Star Superman. Um, but again, just kind of bringing this full circle, this was, you know, really an interesting artifact uh, to, to find, to read, to discuss. And, you know, Rich, I can't thank you enough. You know, this, we always have great chats and I appreciate you, you know, taking the time. And I know you always come with your notes and, and you know, you let me know what you want to go through. And I love that. And, you know, we wouldn't be having this discussion if you didn't shoot me an email saying, hey, <laughs> I found this Superman pitch. So I thank you. No, I was happy. And um, uh, I was happy. I was happy to find it myself. And even when I read like, you know, the first page of it, I said, geez, I got to get this to Anthony. I got to get it to him. 
Um, and to your listeners, um, um, just not to give anything away, but Anthony and I have probably spent the last, what would you say, Anthony, five weeks, six weeks? Yeah, at least. Um, and, and Superman, I loved him as a, when I was a child in the 1960s. Loved him. I loved Kurt Swan's work. But I lost interest as I um, was in high school. I lost interest in him. So, Anthony, your passion and your excitement and the discovery of stuff on your part has really energized me to learn other things. And that's why as soon as I saw this this proposal, um, I had to share it with you. And uh, I'm, I'm just glad we were able to take this time to really – dissect it and, and, and kind of look at the pros and cons and, and see, you know, what might've been. Absolutely. And I know I said this before, but it bears repeating it. You know, uh, one of the reasons why, you know, I always love talking to you and, and now, especially about Superman is, you know, that you, you know, you have a different perspective than I have. And, you know, you've been reading the character so much longer. And, you know, like I said, I'm going to be delving into the pre-crisis Superman as we move forward on this podcast. But, you know, uh, you, you know, you have that frame of reference and you can help give me context and give your take on what it was like to be reading at the time. And it's, it's so helpful to me. And, uh, yeah, as, as Rich was saying, we've been having, uh, these fantastic phone, uh, conversations about the George Reeves Adventures of Superman TV series. And very soon <laughs> we're going to have a couple of those that we record, uh, and you'll hear them, uh, as upcoming episodes of, uh, of digging for kryptonite. So, uh, I really can't wait till we record those and I hope that everybody enjoys. Uh, so Rich, thank you again. Thank you so much uh, for being part of this. Oh, listen, thank you. I love this conversation. I hope your listeners, uh, I hope they, they enjoy it. I really do. So thank you. I'll ring off and um, enjoy it. All right. Thank you, Rich. Take care. Take care. Bye. 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 Uh, thank you all uh, for listening to this episode of Digging for Kryptonite. Uh, be sure to tune in next time. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Schiegel. Music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to listen to My Comic Shop History, available on most major podcast platforms. Sign up for exclusive additional content, including the Digging for Kryptonite companion podcast, at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon.